Fuse Sunday, here we are. Yeah. yeah, good to have everybody. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm a part of our preaching team. And uh, this, is, this is just a, a fun, fun uh, weekend for us. Uh, where are my freshmen at? Where are the freshmen at tonight? Yeah, that was like a freshman-level effort. Uh, where are the sophomores tonight? Is it really? That, that's that week. All right, where are the juniors? And specifically, where are the junior girls that stayed at our house? That's right. Molly and I got to host these lovely ladies. We had a great time. They're awesome. Uh, and what about the seniors? Are there any seniors here? Yes. Yes, that is real leadership from the seniors. Way to go. Way, way to go. Um, man, this is such a fun weekend for us, and it's a really fun weekend for me. I, I don't know why I keep being asked to do this on Sunday. I've told them, if you want to let the person that does all weekend just do the whole thing, that's fine with me. Uh, but they keep letting me do it. And so it's this opportunity for me to really reflect on and pray about, uh, Lord, is there something you would have to say to us as, a, as an intergenerational church, as a church that loves young people and loves older people and wants to see all of us get fused together? And so it's a chance to do that. And, um, and this happens every year. But man, I love you guys. I really do, and I, uh, I've cried at every service. You guys are the only ones that maybe mature enough to understand why. Uh, the sixth graders are like, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> but um, I just, I love you, and we love you, and uh, you matter a lot. And I said it last week, I don't know if all of you were here to hear it, but you're not just the church of tomorrow. You're the church now. And God's doing something in your generation. And if anyone's paying attention, they see it. And we actually need you not to just be part of this church now, but to actually help lead this church now. Because God's doing something in this generation. And it's really special. And so I'm, I'm delighted to be able to share with you and with all of us tonight. Um, and so we're looking at Luke chapter 15. And uh, as... As Yasuda said, uh, Matt Fogel from Rhythm Community Church, he preached this Sunday, or no, not this Sunday, this whole weekend, and uh, it was all about the kingdom of God. If you actually walk through the lobby and you look out at the windows, what you'll see is written all over the windows are Bible verses and prayers related to the kingdom of God. And so it's been all about the kingdom of God. And so tonight, what we're specifically going to talk about is who are the people of the kingdom of God and who's the father of the kingdom, the people of the kingdom and the father of the kingdom. Now, we're introduced to this in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. That's what Ben just read a moment ago, uh, where you see that there's these pretty wildly different groups of people hanging around Jesus. The first group is in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Uh, anybody here tonight work for the IRS? Uh, my guess is even if you did, you would not admit it. And uh, frankly, we wouldn't want to know about it because we don't want you to know we exist. Just leave us alone, right? Like in our day and age, someone that works as a tax collector is like, eh, maybe stay away from them. It was even worse in these days, right? In these days, the tax collectors were people, uh, they were Jewish people who had sold out their Jewish friends and family and were working for Rome, who was the, the oppressing occupier of Israel. They could charge whatever they wanted, so they would charge the basic taxes, but then they would charge more, and they could just pocket the difference. And these tax collectors were literally getting rich by oppressing their countrymen. They were hated. So that's, the, that's part of group one that's hanging out with Jesus. The second part of group one is just this blanket term in verse one, sinners. Now the tax collectors and sinners. 
sinners. And when you say it, you kind of have to sneer. Everybody sneer to your neighbor, sinners, right? These sinners, these are, these are like, this is the riffraff. This is the, they just knew, you knew who they were. They knew who they were. There's no doubt about it. Oh, that's the sinners. So that's the first group of people hanging around. And it says the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. By the way, I just want to say to us tonight as a church that if we're ever a church that is not having sinners drawing near to us, we're not like Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners drawing near to him. So that's the first group. The second group's really different though. Verse two, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, well, the Pharisees, uh, the, the word Pharisee means the set apart ones. Uh, they were the most committed. They were the most religious. They were the most uh, studious of the scripture. And then also the scribes. And so there's Pharisees and scribes. So there's people who know they're really, really bad hanging around Jesus. And then there's also people who think they're really, really good. The Pharisees and the scribes. And what they were doing was grumbling. Wrestle, 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 wrestle. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Ugh, gross. How could this man be a prophet? How could this man be of God? This man receives sinners and eats with them. So th this gives us a sense of the people of the kingdom of God. The people of God are made up of people who at one point knew they were bad and at another point thought they were good but who eventually realize that only Jesus is good and they come into that kingdom. And so Jesus tells some stories to illustrate what life is like in the kingdom. And we're gonna look at the last one that he tells. And he tells it in verses 11 through 32. So if you, if you don't have a Bible, grab one, get your phone out, reach into the seats in front of you, grab that uh, Bible that's there. You're gonna want this to follow along because it, I, I, it, this is just, this to me is an electric story. It's a pretty well-known story. It's, it's what's commonly referred to as the story of the prodigal son. Anyone ever heard of the story of the prodigal son? Uh, what's interesting about that is that actually when you read the first part of the story, you realize this story is not about one son. It's actually about two sons. Look at what it says in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Now, the first one, there's a lot more time spent on him, and it's a lot more of a famous story. So we think it's just the story of the prodigal son. That's not the correct name of this. Really, it should just be the man who had two sons because that's what he has. And so what we're going to look at tonight is we're going we're gonna to see the younger son, we're going to see the older son, and we're going to see the father. And part of what I love about this story, just for me personally, is I, I can relate to all three. I've had times where I've been like this younger son. I've had a lot of times I've been like the older son. And now I'm a dad, and I get a taste of what a father's heart must be like. And so this story has a lot to say, all of us. We're more like these two sons than we think. And God is more like the father in this story than we dare to believe. So let's look at it. Uh, there was a man who had two sons, Jesus says, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, I didn't hear any gasps in the room. But if, Jesus, if you were there when Jesus was telling this story, there would have been people going, <gasps> What did he just say? You got to think about this. This is the first century. This is an honor culture. This is a shame culture. The most important thing to do is to honor your family, not to dishonor or to bring shame upon your family. And this young man says to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Here's another way you could say it. Hey, dad, um, you know how when you die, I'm going to get a bunch of your stuff? 
How about now? In other words, I wish you were dead. Some of you maybe have said that to a parent. It wasn't your best moment. I hope you don't go home this weekend and go, Dad, I wish you were dead. It's, it's dishonorable. But that's what he's saying. Hey, hey, Dad, I want you to treat me as, you, as though you were dead. Give me your stuff. Here's the deal, Dad. I, I don't want you. I don't want time with you. I don't want a relationship with you. I just want your money. I just want your car. I just want your stuff. Just, just give me your blessing, Father, but don't give me you. I'm not interested in that. I wish you were dead. Now, the stunning thing about this is the next sentence. And he divided his property between them. <laughs> like, I mean, most dads would go, you wish, uh, you wish I was dead? Well, you're going to be dead. Like, you can't say that to me, right? And, and instead, he says, okay, let's do it. Now, there's a really simple formula. Um, how, many, how many firstborns do I have in the room here? Uh, students and adults, how many firstborns do I have? Oh, man, you would have loved the first century because in the first century, if there was a man with two sons, the first one, here's how it worked, is the first one was guaranteed to get a double share of the other one. So if this man were to die, the older brother would get two-thirds of his estate and the younger brother would get one-third of the estate. How many younger brothers do I have? How, yeah, yeah. You get spoiled your whole life. So like, hey, it's fair, okay? It's all right. So, so the, this guy divides it. Now here's the thing you gotta think about. This money's not in a cloud somewhere. He's not writing a check. This is not sending Venmo. Like if he's gonna give the son like, cash, coins, the actual money, he's got to sell stuff. So now he's like, the, the community knows like, oh, wow, like Bill is selling off a bunch of his land. What's Bill doing? Well, I guess his son said he wished he was dead. <gasps> Bill's doing what? Bill's an idiot. Why is Bill doing this? Bill should get rid of that kid. But instead he does it. And he sells all this stuff. He gets rid of all these things. And he gives the kid the money. I say kid, he's probably in his early 20s. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to Las Vegas. Oh, I'm sorry, it says into a far country. Now again, the crowd would have gasped because this is a, a group of Jews and they understood that if you're gonna be a faithful to God, if you're gonna be around the principles of God and the morals of God and the law of God, then you're gonna have to stay in Israel. And instead, he's going out to Gentiles. He's going away from the people of God. He's going into the land of uncleanness. He's going into a far country. It says, and there he squandered his property. That word squandered is the same word that's used when it talks about beating uh, wheat like to, make, to separate the wheat from the, the, the chaff. And if the, if the wind would take the chaff and blow it away, it would be squandered. It would be blown away. It would be to the wind. In other words, he takes all this money he got and right away, it just doesn't even take long, poof, it's gone. It's vanished. It's out there. It's squandered. And he squanders it, it says, in reckless living. Now that word reckless, that's actually the word where we get the word prodigal. Now, if I had just taken a quiz and said, hey, what do you think prodigal means? Most of you would have said, I think prodigal probably means lost. Because this story talks about this son who was lost and now he's found. But actually, the word prodigal, it means recklessly extravagant. Embarrassingly, over-the-top, wasteful. That's what it means. In fact, the New King James Bible translates that verse as he squandered his property in prodigal living. That's why he's called the prodigal. What we're going to see tonight is he's not actually the main prodigal in the story. But he squanders it in reckless living. 
And it says then in verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Here's what's so interesting is when you actually rebel against God and you say, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go against my parents. I'm going to go against my tradition. I'm going to go against the way I was raised. I'm going to go against my family. I'm just going to live for me. You always think you're in control. But inevitably, part of what God allows to happen is a bunch of stuff that's out of your control. Right? Even if things go pretty well for you, there's some stuff you can't anticipate. There's curveballs you didn't see coming. And that's the same thing in this story, right? Like he, this guy had control of whether he squandered the money or not, but you know what he didn't have control over? A famine. God's bringing that. Like a famine. There's drought. There's like not food. There's not, like people are starving. Like you can't anticipate that. Listen, sin is going to take you further than you want to go, and it's going to keep you longer than you want to stay. And a lot of that is actually the mercy of God to allow you to experience what life is like in a broken world when you don't want it with him. And so he squanders it, and then a famine arises, and he begins to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. (gasps) Gasp again. Now he's working for a Gentile? You've got to be kidding me. Who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. (gasps) Gasp again. Why? Because pigs were the most unclean of all the unclean animals you were to stay away from, right? Even us Gentiles, we know that the Jews don't eat bacon and eat ham, right? Why? It's pigs, gross, ick. We don't want anything to do with pigs. And, And yet this guy is in this field feeding pigs, and it says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So think about this. This guy is so hungry. He's so destitute. He's so starving that he's looking at what the pigs are eating and he's going, that looks amazing. Now, again, stop and think about this for a moment. Uh, A few of you in this room have pigs, right? Harper, Benji, I know you guys have pigs. I don't know. Are there other pig owners in the room? Any other pig owners? Benji, what, uh, what do pigs eat? Benji has a couple of pigs at his house. What do pigs eat? He said the most random gross food, moldy banana peels. Is, here's a question. Is there anything they won't eat? Okay, so what do pigs eat? Everything. Right, they eat everything. Now think about this. What are you giving, like if, if, if Benji and his family are giving, I, I guess, moldy banana peels to their pig, right? And this is times of plenty, right? What, what, do you, what are they giving to the pigs in times of famine? Like in times of famine, you're probably gonna go like, Maybe we could turn this into banana bread. I don't know. You're going you're gonna to squeeze every little drop out of anything slightly resembling food. And what you're going to give to pigs is actually going to be more like garbage. And he's looking at this garbage. He's looking at this worse than nothing and going, oh my gosh, if I could just eat that. That's how low this man has sunk. He's rebelled. That's what we saw in the beginning. You see the result. It's not going well. But something happens that leads to a new resolution. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, oh man, what what a phrase, when he came to himself. See, everyone who's ever come to faith in Jesus, everyone who's ever become part of the kingdom of God has had a time when they came to themselves, when God allowed them to hit rock bottom, to hit a moment where they're like, gosh, my thing's not working. I thought I was great. I thought it was going awesome. I need some help here. And finally, God in his grace allows him to get to such a low spot that it says in verse 17, he came to himself. Have you come to yourself? 
Some of you are running from God. Some of you are living for yourself. And you think, well, I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to turn this around. Let me tell you, you're not. Predict the future. Spoiler alert. It ain't going to happen. And maybe tonight is the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to be grabbing you and to say, hey, 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 wake up. Come to your senses. You want a better path than this. I have more for you, God's saying. He comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? Huh, what am I doing? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He goes, this is stupid. I'm a mess. What am I doing? I need a plan. Okay, he makes a resolution. God, uh, Father, I'm gonna go to you and I'm gonna tell you some stuff. And here's what I want to tell you about what he says. His resolution, it's the right diagnosis and it's the wrong prescription. It's the right diagnosis. Look at the first part of it. Uh, this is what he says at the end of verse 18. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Like, what's his core problem? He sinned. He rebelled against his father. That's right. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Also true. He basically said, I don't want to be your son. I wish you were dead. True. So his diagnosis, get this, his diagnosis is spot on. But his prescription is wildly off. Look at his prescription. Here's his prescription. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, uh, you know what, Father? You don't have to welcome me back as a son. I've clearly blown that opportunity. But if you would just hire me, I could work for you and I could pay it all back. When I was in high school, I had this really good friend and uh, her dad, I didn't know this at the time, after I graduated, he ended up getting arrested. So this was all happening while I knew her and was hanging out at her house and friends with her. And But her dad was arrested. He was a financial planner who had uh, built people out of tens of millions of dollars in a Ponzi scheme, kind of a Bernie Madoff type deal. And uh, the, the, the state of Colorado, they, they decided we need to make an example of this guy and they sent him, him to like forever. And he was like, hey, I should get out. And his plan for why he should get out, the thing he kept arguing was, if, if you would just let me out, then I could work even just at minimum wage. I know I'm a felon, but I could work at minimum wage and I could pay everybody back. <laughs> You're like, dude, you, like you owe people like $20 million. Like, I don't know how many hours of minimum wage you think you're going to need to work, but you're not, you're too old for that. Like it isn't going to happen, right? Right diagnosis, wrong prescription. And here's what I want to tell you. When we acknowledge that we're sinners, when we acknowledge that we fall short, when we acknowledge God, we're not even worthy to come into your presence. We're accurate about that. But when we say, God, you know what? I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to get in your good graces. I'm going to recommit. I'm going to be good. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to get in your word. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. When, when that's what it is, because that's how we're going to get back into God's good graces. Three for three. Happened all day. Right at the same time, too, pretty much. All right. Bobby Watkins is always prepared, ladies and gentlemen. There's a microphone for me. Where were we? Yeah, yeah. Right diagnosis, wrong prescription. So, so think about this. He's got this speech. Look at the speech again. Uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I just imagine him. He's like, all right, I'm going to go back. 
I can't believe it. I swore I'd never go back there, but I'm going to come back, tail between my legs, and I got to, like, I got to get this right. Like, I got one shot. And so I just picture him walking all these miles, reciting this speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and, I, and uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired Like this is his speech. This is what he's doing. And he starts to make his way back. And then here's what it says in the next verse as we begin to be introduced to the father. It says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We saw the younger brother's rebellion and the result of it and the resolution, but in this just one verse, we see the father's search, we see the father's shame, and we see the father's squeeze. Look at this with me. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Jesus, in telling this story, is almost trying to paint the picture that this father is just has this daily patrol of looking out into the distance and wondering if perhaps today's the day. Some of you, you have a prodigal. Some of you, you have a younger brother. Some of you, you have someone in your family who's gone away, and every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, you start to wonder, am I going to get the email this year? Maybe this will be the year they turn around. Maybe this will be the year they come back. And that's what he has. While he's still a long way off, the father saw him. The father was looking for him. This was the father's heart. He was absolutely devastated that his son went away, but he let him go. But man, every day he's looking. And I just want to tell you that, that the Lord sees you. Even if you're a long way off, even if you're like, I've outsinned his grace, I've gone too far. I did the thing I know I'd, I said I'd never do. Listen, he sees you. He knows you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every concern. He knows everything that's causing anxiety and trouble in your heart. He sees you. The Father saw him and felt compassion. Those two words together just sound like Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, it just over and over says that Jesus saw somebody and he felt compassion. And Jesus is very much like the Father because the Father is very much like God. And if you wanted to get to know what God is like, you got to look at Jesus. And so not only in this verse do we see the Father's search, but we also see the Father's shame. And it comes with that one word uh, that he, he saw him and felt compassion and ran. He ran. Now, now uh, you know, men don't really run. Like, like I used to run. I pretty much just like, rumble now. I don't really run, right? It's where, like, it's, you don't want to see me run, right? It's not a great, it's not a great look, okay? And uh, generally, it's not a great look, and most of us get pretty embarrassed, like, if, if, uh, if our parents were running. Like, some of you, right, students, you remember, maybe you remember, maybe you see it in your little siblings, those days when you would, like, get home from school, and you'd see your dad, you'd see your mom, and you'd go, mommy! And you'd take off, Daddy! And you'd take off, and you'd jump in their arms. Oh, they loved those days. And uh, they, they actually would love you to do that again. But here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine, like, right now, like, your, your parents are going to pick you up at youth group or Fuse or something like that. And after this, they see you across the lobby, and they're like, Honey! 
And they run across the lobby and they jump into your arms. You'd be like, dad, stop it. You're embarrassing me. This is the worst. Leave me alone. Dad, stop it. Some of you are going to try this. I know. I, I just, dads, I'd encourage you. Don't do it, right? Because it would be, it's embarrassing to see someone like that run. Now, however much it would be embarrassing now, it's even worse in this story. Because in this story, this is a wealthy land-owning patriarch. He's important, he's wealthy, he's rich, and wealthy land-owning patriarchs don't run. And here's one of the reasons why. is because in order to run, right, these guys, they would have these long robes. And they would wear the long robes because a big deal in that culture was to protect yourself from your legs being seen. To see, have your legs exposed was to be dishonorable. And you, again, it's an honor-shame culture. You don't want to bring shame on your family. And so you don't want your legs to be exposed. And so listen, if, if a guy in a robe is going to run, what's he got to do? Ladies, you ever worn a prom dress or a bridesmaid dress and it rained? Here's what you're doing. You got to hike it up a little bit and you're going to see the legs, right? This is like, right? And, and, and here's what I want to tell you. This younger son, he's the one that should have been coming home experiencing shame. He's the one on his way home. The whole town should have gotten together and be like, that guy's the worst. Can you believe him? And instead, all the shame that would be directed at him is instead absorbed by the father. Did you see him running? Can you believe that? He's running. He's taking the son's shame. Listen, this is what Jesus Christ does on the cross for us. On the cross, when we should be exposed, when we should be punished, when we should be insulted, Jesus on the cross, he's exposed, right? Not just his legs showing, he was crucified naked. Experiencing the judgment of sin for every person who would ever believe in him. Insulted. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. And the father runs. Says, I'll take that shame. And then you see the father squeeze. He saw him. He felt compassion and ran. And he embraced him and kissed him. He kissed him, he hugged him, he grabbed him, he squeezed him. Notice, the guy, the kid has not gotten the speech out yet. The kid hasn't said anything yet. But this is the father's heart. This is God's heart for you to embrace you. This is God's heart to you to welcome you. This is God's heart for you. And, and just think about this for a moment. How do you think this young guy smelled? He probably smelled like the seventh graders after a weekend of fuse. Let's be honest. But I told those guys this morning, I was like, guys, really, seriously, do stick with the deodorant thing. Like, it'll really help you. Um, right? Like, that's, that's, he embraced him and kissed him. Get this. He, he takes the uncleanness of the pigs, which this kid's been soaking in, and he absorbs it. Just like Jesus on the cross took the uncleanness of our sin on himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And now the speech starts. 
Remember, he'd been memorizing the speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can even get to the prescription, the father interrupts him, right? He says the first part of the speech. I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can even get there, God, the father in this story says, no, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God, get this, is not interested in your plan to make up for your sin. He's interested in you coming to his party. He's interested in welcoming you. And I love just the little detail here that it says that he put a robe on him. Not just a robe, but the best robe. And that got me thinking, where's another place in scripture? Where's another place in the gospels? Where's another place with Jesus where there's a robe? You know, before Jesus went to the cross as he was being whipped and beaten, one of the things those soldiers did is they brought to him a purple robe. They put it around his shoulders. They said, hey, O king of the Jews. And yet another way that God takes our shame is that he experiences the robe of mockery so that we can get the best robe, so that we can have the best party. That's the heart of God. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And that leads us finally to the last person of the story, the older son. He's mentioned again in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field. Where was he? In the field. What does that mean? What was he doing in the field? Working, right? You firstborns, this is what you do. You do what's right, dang it. You know, your siblings, they're screwing around. You're not you. You're working hard. You're doing the right thing. Uh, you also are pointing out how they're not doing the right thing. Uh, that's a common feature in the older son uh, dynamic. But this son is in the field, and uh, he's coming in, and he's going to the house, and he starts to hear something. Now, we're surrounded uh, we're surrounded all the time by music, right? Like you have your headphones in all the time. Uh, you go to the mall or the Queen Creek Marketplace. or There's music everywhere. Like we're inundated with music. But think about this. This guy's working in a field. You didn't hear music. But look at what it says. As he came near and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He's like, is that the Midnight's album? What is that? What's going on? And he calls to the one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. The fattened calf. Just think for a moment about the fattened calf. Remember, in order to liquidate enough money to give to the younger son, he had to get rid of everything else so that everything that was left belonged to the older son. So whose fattened calf was it that the father decided to feast on? It literally belonged to the older son. It was part of his inheritance. He's been compliant, but now we see that he's also cold. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. 
I'm not coming in. No way. Right? He's going to make a scene of it. Right? He's not just going to not come in. He's going to stand out there defiantly and refuse to go in. And the father comes out. It says his father came out and entreated him. That means he begged him. He pleaded him. He said, come on, you've got to come. Right? Again, this is the heart of the father, is searching for his people, searching for his children, saying, come into the party. I want you. You're invited. Get in here. But he answered his father, verse 29, look, look. Just incredible disrespect here. Look. Right? Like, we notice the disrespect of the younger son, but this is the disrespect of the older son. Look. He's angry. Here's one of the things I've noticed over time is people who are really, really bad, when bad stuff happens in their life, they get mad at themselves. And they probably should. They go, man, I really screwed this up. I'm the worst. Look at where my poor decisions have left me. But do you know people who think they're really good and moral and religious? Do you know who they get mad at when things don't go well? They get mad at God. God, don't you know how faithful I've been? Don't you know how I've served you? God, don't you know all the prayers I prayed? God, don't you know all the things that I did? God, don't you know all the money I gave? God, don't you? Look, God. Look, God, I deserve better than this. How are you going to let this happen, God? It's the older brother. Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, right? This sounds like when I'm talking to my wife about uh, one of our kids. This son of yours, honey. She's like, also he's yours. Uh, and acting a little bit more like you right now. Uh, this, this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes. You kill the fattened calf for him. You wouldn't even give me a goat. And now you're throwing the world's biggest party for that loser? Come on, God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. You know what it sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled and said, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. So the father replies. The father wants him in the party. The father's inviting him in. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And it begs the question, did the older brother go into the party? What do you think? Did he go in? Did he not go in? Did Jesus skip the last class of storytelling 101 when they told how to like finish a story? Because it goes on, the next verse is just like, and he told them another story. Wait, 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 you didn't finish that one. No, Jesus leaves them on an incredible cliffhanger. He doesn't say what happened. He doesn't, like, the scene, just fade to black, scene ends. Why? Because you have to finish the story. I have to finish the story. Will we come in to the party? We said at the beginning, this story is about the father of the kingdom. It's also about the people of the kingdom. And here's what I want to tell you. The people of the kingdom are anyone who will come into the party. If you know you're really, really bad, or if you think you're really, really good, it doesn't matter. What you have to do is humble yourself and turn from reliance on yourself and turn from trying to use God to trying to surrender to God. Get this. There's two ways to be avoiding God. 
One way is to be really, really bad, right? That's obvious. Like, yeah, do all the bad stuff. God's not going to like that. The other way, though, is to be really, really good. To always do the right thing, to always show up on time. Because listen, if you're just always doing the right thing, then it's like, what do you need God for? You're, you're good. No, the, the, the invitation of this passage is to say, what will you do? Will you come to God's party? Will you receive his grace? Will you receive his search? Will you receive his shame in your place? Or will you say, nope, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to keep hold of the shame. I'm going to take care of it. What will you do? How many of you, you realize as you hear this, like, yeah, you know what? I'm a younger brother. Listen, if that's you, come. The Father's arms are open. He's saying, I, I, got, I, I got you. And some of you, you'd say, you know what? I'm more the older brother. I've always been pretty good, but I actually realize, like, I'm actually filled with pride. Listen, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not be better. It's not try harder. It's, it's look to the one who did it all. Surrender to him. Follow him. Come into his party. Listen, students, just to close with just one last word to you in particular. Uh, you're going to go through life, and you're going through it now, and you're going to be constantly assessing uh, the church. And one of the things that's going to make you go, I don't know, is this real? Is actually uh, a bunch of Christians that act like younger brothers. They say they're all good with God, but they actually are rebellious. And you'll also be equally turned off by older brothers who say, you know what, I'm okay. It's not, I, I'm better than everybody else. And here's what I want to tell you. If, if your faith hinges on what other Christians are doing, you'll lose it. You'll walk away from it. You'll deconstruct it. You'll abandon it. But if you look to the prodigal father, he'll hold you. See, see the person who's the prodigal in this story it's the father. Remember that word? Recklessly extravagant, almost wasteful in his grace. Listen, if you look to other people, they'll constantly let you down. They'll constantly disappoint you. But if you will look to the father, he'll hold you fast. Let's pray. So God, thank you for your grip. And thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your pursuit. And thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful. God, we come to you tonight with all sorts of stories and all sorts of backgrounds, some more like younger brothers, some more like older brothers, all of us saying, Lord, thank you for inviting us into this party. Thank you for taking our shame. Thank you for taking our mess. Thank you for taking our stench. Thank you for embracing us, even when we didn't deserve it. And Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to look to you, the prodigal God, the prodigal father, the extravagantly gracious God that you are, and we want to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we want to run the race that's ahead of us. In your name we pray, amen.